Hello, friends and the people who matter, and welcome back to the Garden State of Hockey podcast. As the stoppage continues, we continue to bring you some look-backs at classic Devils games and big pivotal moments in franchise history. And last week, we covered the all-important Game 7 of the 2000 um, Eastern Conference Final. So we decided to kind of drift away from that, and we moved towards the Devils' first championship. It's the only uh, championship year where we haven't covered a game yet. And so we chose Game 1 of the Stanley Cup Final that took place in Detroit at Joe Louis Arena. And again, this is a series that we prefaced last week in saying that Everyone and their mother thought Detroit would destroy the Devils, looking up and down those lineups going into the game. You know, clearly the Devils did not have that difficult of a time in the Eastern Conference, but as John Fisher will tell you, I don't think anyone going into the 95 Stanley Cup Final thought the Devils had a ghost of a chance. No. I mean, let's take a step back first. First and foremost, a lockout shortened the season to 48 games, and Detroit was pretty much putting together... Um, a supremely powerhouse team. So in that 48-game stretch, they were absolutely dominant. They won 33 games and had four ties for 70 points. They finished first in their division, first in the West. You know, they had a ridiculous 72.9 point percentage. <laughs> they outscored their opponents by more than 60 overall. Uh, it was just ridiculous. And you look up and down the lineup, like their leading scorer that season was a 33-year-old named Paul Coffey, who's yeah. in the Hall of Fame. Casual. A, 20, a 25-year-old uh, Russian guy named Sergei Fedorov, also in the Hall of Fame. A a uh, 29-year-old uh, guy who's lived through the bad times of the Detroit Red Wings and was on his way to lead on to the great times of the Detroit Red Wings in the modern era, Steve Yeiserman. He was on that team. Of young Nicholas Lidstrom at age 24 was getting his uh, feet wet next to coffee on the defense. He is also in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Dino they Cicerelli, also, Hall of that, Famer. That's right. Dino Cicerelli was a great ad at the ripe age of 34, showing that he still had plenty left in the tank. And yes, he indeed is in the Hall of Fame. Maybe one of and, the best undrafteds of all time, too. And they also had supporting their defensive depth, uh, two older defensemen that uh, was prevalent in not only the game that we watched, but throughout the season. Uh, Russian legend Slava Fetisov. I'm not even going to try to pronounce how you're supposed to say his first name. Because <laughs> you'll just make fun of him. Yeah, Vicheslav. There you go. Thanks, Dan. Yep. Uh, he indeed played 14 games and put up 14 points as a 36-year-old in the regular season. And then, of course, because it's the playoffs, he played throughout the entire playoffs. And... Check this out. A 39 to near, turning 40 Mark Howe. <laughs> and during the broadcast, it was brought up by John Davidson, who had a fantastic night as a color commentator, uh, brought out that the Detroit Red Wings have never won a Stanley Cup without a guy named Howe on their team. And would you would you believe it? They had a Howe. Gordy's son, Mark Howe. And these were not the Detroit Vipers where they play it together in the IHL. These are no. the very legit Detroit Red Wings as we see Hall of Famers up and down their lineup stacked up against what would become New Jersey's eventual three. And that all being said, just entering this series as a playoff series... The Devils actually had a pretty decent time through the Eastern Conference, beating Boston 4-1, to Pittsburgh 4-1, to and handling Philadelphia 4-2. Now, Detroit, yep. on the other hand, had lost two games the entire playoffs leading into this yep. with series wins of 4-1, 4-0, and 4-1. So these are two teams that are 
playing pretty hot coming into this game and going into game one, which was on the road for New Jersey. The Devils were eight and one on the road up until that point, And Detroit yep. was eight. No at home. So something had to give here. Exactly. And again, while the, the New Jersey Devils definitely had a very good season, you couldn't disrespect the run that they had. You know, this was very much a case of, oh, we've got all the talent. Like Detroit has the talent. Like New Jersey has a trap. Okay, yeah, Brodor could be a guy. Stevens is good. Niedermeyer could be a guy, you know, so on and so forth. But come on, Detroit's got Detroit's got Fedorov and Yeiserman and Coffee and Lidstrom and Cicerelli and, he, and, you know, a 23-year-old Keith Primo, a 28-year-old Ray Shepard, a 22-year-old Vyacheslav Kozlov. Uh, Larianov? Know, Larry, uh, no, Larianov oh, was not on this team. Uh, Konstantinov was Constantino, on this Constantino, that's right. Kozlov that's right. as well. You also had a, guys who played a very long time in the NHL like Darren McCarty, Chris Draper, um, older veterans from the 80s like Doug Brown, who was a former devil, and Sean Burr and Bob Airy. And Mike Vernon was brought in for this team uh, specifically to be that goaltender to get them over the top. Uh, backing him up was a 22-year-old Chris Osgood. So it, so even though, yes, New Jersey definitely earned their ticket, the, the word on the street was – Detroit's got this. Not only did they have all this talent, they also had Scott Bowman, the guy who coached Jacques Lemaire, the guy who pretty much came up with the neutral zone trap in the 1970s. <laughs> and supposedly, and this was brought up by JD on the broadcast set when the Red Wings acquired Fedosov, Fedosov and Bowman had a long sit-down meeting, and they went over everything about the New Jersey Devils, and Bowman claimed he knew how he was going to beat the trap. He was going <laughs> to beat it with speed, Dan. Glorious, glorious speed. I'm yeah, going to spoil so, this for everybody. No. <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't work. And let's just launch right into the game, because I think the one of the most notable things about this, and this is something that the really all-star team of Doc Emmerich, John Davidson, and Joe Micheletti on the Fox NHL on Fox broadcast, yep. wrap your head around that one for a second, talked about frequently, but this was in many ways just a coaching duel. This was in many ways, Lemaire and Bowman really just trying to get the best matchups out there situationally. And it was something that I don't remember being discussed as frequently in some of the other games we watched in terms of who's out there taking offensive zone faceoffs, when they're doing it, who's matched up against whom, who, which line is staying on, what choices the coaches are making. And for good reason, as these two are, you know, Bowman's record speaks for itself. I don't need to go into all of his accolades. And they are very numerous, but Lemaire, arguably the most successful coach in Devils history, really was with him, you know, step by step. He really knew how to use every single person on his team and maximize their talent in the roles that he assigned for them. It was coached very much like you would see in today's game, in that both team both coaches were very concerned about the matchups, even to the point that we would change lines in the middle of the game, not just because somebody was hurt, which happened in Detroit's case, but also for the fact that they wanted to make sure that Lemieux was always going to be around with Keith Primo or he's always going to be around Dino Cicerelli. They always wanted to get Bobby Holik and the crash line out against this other unit. Like even if, if, if Bowman made a switch, Lemaire made a switch as well. It was very much on the fly. We're going to just tactically change this and it, the game was going to come down to who understood their team system better and who was going to execute that system better. And as it would turn out, that would be New Jersey. Yeah, and that crash line that you mentioned is a good starting off point for this game because one of the first big chances in this game was Bobby Holik on a two-on-one having a yes. shot almost wriggle through Vernon and Niedermeyer right there for the tap-in attempt. But that line of Holik, Peluso, and McKay was put together 
you know, not long before this game took place and ended up being, if not the most famous line in Devil's history, then definitely second or third. It was definitely one of the more famous fourth lines that you're going to find out because that was their that was their bread and butter. They were the depth line. And back then you didn't do power for power per se. Teams would have one or in the case of the Devils, two checking lines. So Holik, McKay and Peluso was that blend of toughness defensive skill and even some offensive skill because McKay could definitely shoot the puck pretty well and Bobby Holik who by the way was um he was just 24 years old in this game or mm. 25 depending on where his birthday actually no he was 24 I take it back but nevertheless Holik was a burgeoning talent so it definitely would hit you in a lot of ways whereas a lot of other teams their fourth liners are just a bunch of goons or young guys or depth guys um so the Devils had a decided matchup advantage that uh, Lemaire exercised crucially. And, of course, Holik, McKay, and Peluso would get a whole bunch of points. Everybody would get excited about the big hits. Peluso's flashy salad coming out of his helmet. And, um, you know, it was very much a well-renowned line among Devils fans back in the 90s. Yeah, and so that line was put together, you know, during this playoff run or a little bit before it. And also Bruce Driver uh, managed to have his first game back after a tweaky um, was out for a little bit, and then I think both teams got a decent amount of rest before the finals actually started. Yeah, both. Well, the Devils had two days fewer rest, and that was brought up as a bit of a factor, which eh, I, I don't think it really showed in this game. Yeah. But Bruce Driver w- did have a back issue. Uh, that's led to Kevin Dean getting. I'm sorry, not Kevin Dean. Um, no, I take it back. Kevin Dean got his three games um, in that uh, Philadelphia series because Driver was out. He was the seventh defenseman. But, yeah, everybody was kind of banged up going into this one. Driver had a back issue. Fedorov had a shoulder issue. Um, and there would be more injuries to come in this game, yeah. uh, including one very important one for this particular series. But we'll get to it when we get to it. Yeah. Um, but to your point, Dan, is that, um, you know, this game, I think the, the game really came down to uh, Lemaire versus Bowman. And clearly – we can say this in retrospect, Lemaire won the battle, but you could see here that in this very first game, which is in Detroit, it's in a place where Detroit hasn't lost in the playoffs yet. And it was very much a close game. And yet Lemaire was unflappable. Like he didn't panic. He didn't make any crazy decisions or bench any guys because they made one big mistake. Like if Bruce driver, just for example, turned the puck over in a heinous fashion, (laughs) you know, Driver, you know, in the slot you know, to Iserman, is that what you're talking about? <laughs> eh, well, that's one of two. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, the point is that he didn't go out and like extraneously bench somebody just because uh, something went awry uh, in the in the game. Like he kept to the plan and clearly the plan succeeded. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all that being said, in keeping to that, he also started mixing up the defensive lines as well, where Scott Stevens and Sean Chambers broke up the pairing of Stevens and Danico that was together for a while up until this point as well. So he's really, you right. know, sensing all the matchups. And I think one that he particularly loved in this game, there's a couple of, you know, person to person matchups here. And I think the injury you're alluding to is exactly the one that, you know, probably altered the course of the series. And you know, given what we know about what happened in 2000, made Keith Primo already hate the Devils. But him, his matchup against Scott Stevens was one to watch. And also Claude Lemieux against his opposite number 22, Dino Cicerelli, which is a feud that would last for years after this. Oh, definitely. And this whole one of the playoff stories going into this series was that Lemieux was being is being used as a shadow. You don't see this very much in today's game because more or less the, the trend is 
for power. You don't just have dedicated to just following one guy around the ice. But Lemieux was that guy. And Lemieux was a total pain to play. He would frustrate you. He would draw calls. He'll 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 sucker punch you if necessary. I mean, if you're a Detroit Red Wings fan, you you hate this man. You started hating this man now, and then you would go on to hate him even more a couple of years later in his time with Colorado. Um, but Lemieux was matched up with Cam Neely in the first round. Lemieux won the matchup. Then he got Yarmir Yager, a young Yarmir Yager, Dan, in the second round, won the matchup. And in the third round, I believe he had John LeClaire. So that's like right there is like three of the top right wingers at that time, all in prime ages, all very successful in key parts of their team. And Claude Lemieux didn't just like shut them down, but he outscored them like crazy. He had six goals in the Pittsburgh series. Mm-hmm. Like he went into this game the leading goal scorer in the playoffs. And that was a big reason why he ended up winning the Conn Smythe over Stefan Richet or Martin Brodeur or Scott Stevens or even Neil Broughton. Uh, because the guy was just – he was given a, primarily a defensive role and then he just took it to the next level. And you got to see a lot of that in this game. Uh, this came against Detroit. Yeah, and this is a case of heroes stay heroes. As you know, almost every game we've talked about that he participated in, he was a hero. And again, the top scorers for New Jersey, like the the Eliashes, the McLeans, not as present. Although McLean did manage to get a point in this one. And um, on that point, happy birthday to Patrick Eliash for recording this on his birthday. So big ups to him. But he was not part of this team, which saw the first period mostly. I would say, you know, at the beginning, Detroit was really coming on strong. Keith Primo was establishing himself in front of the net, as was Cicerelli. There was some some jostling going on with Peluso. And eventually, uh, Bill Guerin got called for holding uh, Dino Cicerelli. And this, and this game, similar to the 1980s game that we watched, oh my goodness, the rest let a lot of things go. I think every single shift had somebody hooking or slashing somebody. There was a lot of water skiing going along in this game. So to get a penalty in this game mean, mean, meant you had to do something extraneous. Well, and in this case, Garrett literally jumped on the bench at the same, jumped off the bench at the same time as Dino Cicerelli did, and literally tackled him. <laughs> like he just straight up held him and threw him down, and it was like, well, yeah, that's going to be called, man. <laughs> and, and then you know, looking back, you know, as a fan, like, granted, I was a kid when this happened. Uh, I was goodness, eleven years old. Um, I'm I'm watching this back the other day. And that first power play unit on Detroit, Dan, featured Paul Coffey, Nicholas Lidstrom, Sergei Fedorov, Steve Yeiserman, and Dino Cicerelli. Yes, that's decent. the first unit. That, that's an <laughs> all Hall of Famer power play unit. And it was weird to see New Jersey just like shut them down. Just as much as it was weird to see John McClain and Neil Broughton killing the penalty. Um, yeah. They were doing a very good job at that as well. Well, so they um, shut them down for the most part, but there was one dangerous opportunity, at least on this power play, for Steve yes. Eiserman. And he yes. takes a shot, looks like it may have deflected off of a stick in front and hit the crossbar and went straight out of the zone. Initially, um, you know, JD thought that Brodeur got to it because it was called a face-off in the devil zone. It more looked like it went off a devil's stick and then hit the crossbar. So close call there to avoid getting scored on by this vaunted power play, which would still, you know, strike later in the game. But that's already one post for those of you keeping score at home. Right. And 
keep in mind, there was just very few shots to start this game. Like the first 10 minutes of this game had three official shots on that. Yeah. <laughs> just three. And it, and again, to your point, Detroit was definitely the better team in terms of moving the puck through the neutral zone. For all the talk about the Devils trap, neutral zone trap, neutral zone trap, neutral zone trap. The neutral zone was not trapped in those first 40 minutes. Detroit was able to move freely in, in through that neutral zone. It was just that when they got into the devil zone, there was just a red jersey in their way almost all of the time either getting in their way, frustrating them, hitting them, getting a stick on them, fouling them, not getting called for the foul, of course. And the puck would just miss. They lose it. It gets stolen, gets blocked. So Brodeur, you know, had this weird game where like there was he had to be on his on his ready for anything, really. But at the same time, not much would come. <laughs> yeah. Which no, I imagine as a goaltender, you had to be incredibly frustrated with because it's like you want to get into a groove. You don't want to be cold especially in a Stanley Cup final, your first Stanley Cup final game on the road against the best team in the NHL. And maybe, you know, uh, that's the reason that these goalies were so aggressive playing every single puck. This was something that uh, both Vernon and Brodeur did, but they were very often at the top of their crease when people had point-blank opportunities. And I know that's how you're you know, generally supposed to play. It's just something you don't yeah. see as proactively these days as more goalies no. are staying and kind of hugging their net. But these guys were way out there. They were attacking every yeah. single puck, every chance they I got. Mean, if the Devils had the puck with within the top of the circle, Vernon was typically at the bottom of the of the faceoff circle. Like he <laughs> went super aggressive. Like I almost walk. I don't think goalies are supposed to be 15 feet out of their net, but hey, um, it kind of worked for him. So <laughs> you know, job done. Um, yeah, but you know, Detroit doesn't score on that power play. The Devils get a power play because Konstantinov basically held Lemieux's stick, and again, Lemieux drew that call. Hint, hint, wink, wink. It was weird to see the second power play unit featuring Serge a young Sergey Breland along yep. with a young Bill Guerin and a older John McClain. Uh, as per power play one had McKay, Broughton, and Richet up front. Um, lots of hooks. Not <laughs> not much going. Detroit defensemen love to pinch. The Devils defensemen do not pinch. But they and did the, manage to get the three shots on the Devils' power play. They Those did. are the only three that they had that time, and it was all by the defensemen. Yes, it was. You're absolutely right. Um, it wasn't so much pinching. They were just hanging out at the blue line because that's how you that's how you did power plays back then. You didn't do this 1-3-1 one, one stuff. It was basically, I would almost say, positional in a way, um, with the exception of McKay just hanging out in front of that because he's a big guy, and Lemaire loves having big dudes in front of the goalie, goalie on, the, on his power plays. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but this first period did not have a whole lot of stuff happen. Uh, big hits, both teams getting angry at each other. Um, Bowman and Lemaire are changing their lines as needed. New Jersey survived a late attack from Detroit, and that was the end of the first period. Like that's that's pretty much it. Like, yeah, the, no the scoring, only, no big uh, plays. The only couple notes I had is that you know uh, Brown managed to get like a sneaky deflection in front that almost went. Brodor was square to it. Keith Primo, I noted, was already everywhere on the ice, and that makes yeah. his loss way more significant. But it seemed like every time Detroit had the puck, his name was called. He was really, really you know, finding a lot of space out there, as was Niedermeyer, who single-handedly sprung Carpenter for a big, big opportunity. But yeah, Brodeur had to make a save with the knob of his stick to end yep. that first period, and it remained 0-0. Yep, and uh, I'm glad you brought up Niedermeyer, because among all the defensemen on New Jersey who were basically told to play their position, Niedermeyer was, you know, he's historically told us he's the guy who was given the green light to do whatever he wants, 
And you got to see that in full effect in this game. And it worked out beautifully because he was able to find the space. And he, he played a modern game. He played a, 2000, a 2020 game in 1995. And um, you, you couldn't help but not notice him. Right. It was wonderful. So the second period. The second period begins second and period. things are getting chippy. Very nasty. I, I've, I got note down that Rouse knocked down Lemieux and then Kozlov, of all, pl- of all players, just decided to throw a headshot at Breland in the corner. Yeah. JD called it, but the ref decided, nope, I'm just going to let that go. Yeah, and it was, it was a, um, makes a huge save on Burr. Oh, yeah, Burr. Burr I don't know how. Uh, this wasn't Scott Stevenson's best game, I'll say. Hmm. I, I don't think he was bad, but there were a couple times where you're like, man, wake up. There's a, Burr's in the slot. He got, he got a one-timer. Oh, Bernard denied him. Great save, but it's like, okay. And and fine. Detroit was still tilting the ice at this point as Fedorov also hit the second post of the game for the Red Wings. That's right. And um, that turnover was caused by Driver, I believe. Mm-hmm. And it led to one of the few two-on-one uh, odd man rushes, I should say, that Detroit had in this game. Because I think New Jersey went into this game, as they did with most of that season and most of the teams under Lemaire, to say, we're going to do our best. Yeah, we're not, we may not be taking too many chances going forward, but we're going to make fully aware and fully sure that you are not going to get any odd man rushes on them. So if, if something did, like that did happen, it would have to come from a mistake. And Driver, unfortunately, made that one. But thankfully, the post saved everything yeah and, and so um, the iron was especially friendly to the devils today but also the red wings at times and uh the devils knew they had to kind of tilt the ice back the other way so carpenter got free in front and had a pretty decent opportunity and then got punched in the face by draper who was immediately penalized and fittingly <laughs> as he should be <laughs> yeah i mean he's straight like this is any ear of the game we're talking, but he punched him glove straight to face, not even pretending <laughs> to hide it or in any sort of reasonable scrapping situation. So he's penalized. Nope. Yep. Straight up. He goes to the box and off that face off um, from Broughton winning it back to Albaline, he finds Richet mm-hmm. on the side and a shot that doesn't look like it has a lot of legs manages to squeak through Vernon for the first goal of the game. This was one of the softest goals I have seen in a long time, Dan. And this was from 1995. (laughs) Like, there's a reason why shooting from the half wall is, like, one of the worst shots you can take in hockey. Because it's not just statistically it's a very low percentage shot. But it's because, as you said, it's a very difficult spot to shoot from. It's it's not – you don't have a good angle at the goal, for one. For another – you know, even if you get a lot off of it, there's a board behind you. So, you know, you're not going to wind up with a slap shot or anything like that. And, you know, it's it's from a good distance away. It's from it's from <laughs> I mean, I, I want to guess that was what, 40, 45 feet away. Like no goalie should ever give up a shot from that spot wide open. There was no screen. Broughton was trying to set a screen, but he moved out of the way. Vernon had enough time to set up J.D., who, who was a former goaltender himself. Um, clearly said, nope, Vernon saw that shot, and he just it just went through his legs and, and just tucked inside the post over the line. The broadcasters were confused, too, because initially, you know, the shot was taken. It looked pretty routine, and the puck yeah. didn't even make it all the way to the back of the net. It just kind of nope. stopped because it was so slow and just dribbled over the line. I mean, it was entirely over the line. There was no question about that. It was, you know, by a wide margin, but it actually didn't manage to hit any twine. No, it didn't. It, and again... Super soft goal, and 
that's your first goal of the Stanley Cup Finals yeah. in 1995. Vernon making an oopsie, and then if you were watching on TV, a New Jersey Devils robot turned into a vacuum, sucked up the Red Wing robot, turned him into a puck, and shot it and <laughs> cheered after scoring because, hey, it's the NHL on Fox. <laughs> yeah, Fox always had the crazy robot graphics, which we love, but um, – yeah. You know, right after that, Carpenter came close to making it 2 nothing. The goal light went on. Turns out oh, it was yeah. the third post of the game, and Detroit gets bailed out this time around. And I guess was, at that point, down one nothing, they'll take that. This was if, – if this was a goal, first of all, you would have to yell at Bob Arry on this one because Richet just took the puck from him like a candy from a baby, set, threw it to Lemieux. Lemieux took found Carpenter wide open in the slot just like Burr was earlier in this period. And – the shot went through Vernon. Thankfully, it went off the inside of the post. The goal light obviously went on. JD and Doc thought it was a goal. And then JD's like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, I got to take another look at that. They they actually made a very big point of this on the broadcast that, you know, video review, this was the 18th time they used it in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And it was used primarily for situations like this. And it was the correct call to say no goal. But my goodness, this was sh- literally the shift after the Devils score a power play goal. And as Doc put it, you know, when the Devils were up one nothing, it was like you were down one and three quarter goals. Yeah. If they were up by two goals. It was like you were down three. Yeah. And um, I love that line. <laughs> yeah. But Carpenter, Carpenter had himself a fantastic game. Like I just kept noticing, man, Carpenter eventually gets a lot of shots in this game. He actually had seven <laughs> to lead both teams by a wide margin in wow. this one. Uh, that Carpenter line with him, Lemieux, and Richet uh, got a lot going. Uh, they were they were the money line in this one, for lack of a better term. Um, unfortunately, Carpenter did not get involved in any of the points, but you can't hate on a man with seven shots in a in a Stanley Cup final against you know the best team in hockey. Yeah, I and mean, then, um, then you have Detroit in this game of ebbs and flows, but really like slow ebbs and flows, they kind of have to take the momentum back. So Slava Fetisov and really, uh, you know, Fedorov, who was legit everywhere as well. That that Fedorov-Cicerelli-Primo combination of names was terrifying. It was harrowing oh, yeah. because they were actually everywhere on the ice. And as such, Fetisov made a play to almost connect to Cicerelli, but, you know, as his shadow, Claude Lemieux, despite oh, was, being very disappointed. And I know this because later on that same shift, he I-sticked Dino in the face and took a penalty that would end up being costly. (laughs) Oh, okay, okay. So Claude Lemieux took the next penalty. That's what it was. Yeah, he took the following penalty. Okay, so he gets hooked on his way out. This was was Cicerelli getting hooked on his way out, and this is something that, you know, the Devils— didn't want to find themselves shorthanded with that Hall of Fame power play happening. Nope. And late in that power play, despite the fact that McLean was wide open for a shorthanded chance and just couldn't keep the puck on the ice. Um, no, no, he he got stopped. He, well, I, no, I know, but he got stopped shooting it high. And then the, the oh, quote yes. was on his way back to the bench was uh, if he just kept it on the ice, that's a goal. And immediately yeah. after that, I shot off the boards um, by Fedorov. Oh, Lidstrom, sorry. Yeah, it goes right to Cicerelli, and he just taps it in. Yeah, I mean, this was one of those plays where, and J.D., again, John Davidson was a great color commentator in this game. He was a great analyst. He pointed out that Brodeur had to bite on the uh, shot by Lidstrom. He couldn't just assume that was going to be a wide shot. And because of the how hard the puck bounced off the end boards, like 
Bordeaux was just basically exposed on his right flank. So Cicerelli basically had a layup. And Cicerelli has made a career, a Hall of Fame career, of scoring goals like that. And he was, at that time, um, Detroit's leading goal scorer. He had, I think, seven goals at that time, and five of them, I think, were on the power play. Like, that's how he made his money, so to speak. Yeah, and, uh, he played the make, primo make it, role. Make it six, bro. <laughs> Well, he played the role that Primo ended up playing in Philadelphia in that game we watched, where he you know, stands in front, cleans up the garbage, and tries to outmuscle everyone, which yeah. is easier to do when you also have Primo doing the same thing on the Red Wings. Exactly. And, you know, Cicerelli was definitely not a small man himself. Like, okay, yeah, okay, he technically was at 5'10 and 185 pounds, but he was a strong 185. He was a stocky 185. Mm-hmm. You know, there was. I would bet that, you know, he had less than 10% body fat. Like, this is a dude that I'm expecting and hoping because if he doesn't, then I'm going to be really sad about how he was out much like guys in front of the net. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, in those quote-unquote areas. Uh, but yeah, it's 1-1. We have to wait because of the octopuses, octopi, yep. and other paraphernalia was thrown onto the ice. A You can thank Florida for expo- uh, killing that, by the way. Um but this led to an extensive delay. And of course they had there was like a divot in the ice, so they had to like scrape that up too. Mm-hmm. And then things got things got weird. Yeah, things things got weird as uh Steve Eiserman gets hooked yeah. by Claude Lemieux, and Claude Lemieux calls him a diver from the penalty box, he motions with his hands, saying he flopped a little bit. And yeah, then but right off the face off, Lemieux literally made a beeline towards the Eiserman. It was like, I'm just going to get behind you and hook you down. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, I, like JD's like, that was a lazy penalty. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> and he didn't agree with it. And it was rare for Lemieux. Like one thing that they mentioned was that, you know, despite him being the shadow for the more skilled players, he was wildly disciplined. He did not take that many penalties in no. this playoff season. And this was a rare case for him. And luckily the devils weren't punished for it, but not after Cicerelli and Fedorov uh, freaked him out a little bit. Oh yeah. I mean, Cicerelli just continued to be a problem. Now this, this power, I'm sorry, this shorthanded situation led to a very important point of not only the game, but also the series. Mm-hmm. So Keith Primo missed a couple shifts earlier. He missed a couple shifts earlier, but he was returning. So I guess he, he had an issue. The trainer said, yeah, whatever. And Primo's like, hey, it's the Stanley Cup Finals. Of course I'm going to go back on the ice. You'll have right. to kill me before I do that. <laughs> right. So the Devils are trying to make a clearance. Bobby Carpenter creams Bob Airy. And then along the sideboards, it looked like – well, not looked like, but Scott Stevens – just hit Primo kind of from behind into the sideboards, like not a boarding penalty per se, but definitely not like a straight up, you know, side to side hit. So, I mean, in this in this game, in this time frame, that was never going to be a penalty. Maybe in 2020 it would be. I don't know. But Stevens must have caught Primo in a real bad way because Primo immediately grimaces and skates to the bench. And that would be the last you would see Keith Primo in this game. And if I'm not mistaken, he didn't come – I don't think he came back in the following game. I don't know how much of that final series he actually played in actually. Mm-hmm. Um, give me a moment here and I will quickly check because now I 
curious here. Yeah, no problem. He, and in the meantime, I mean, it was oh, obvious how impactful yeah, his absence too. was. It was it was just so plain that Detroit's entire game plan shifted once he was no longer on the ice. And it's surprising to see, you know, with all those names on their roster, how much their plan revolved around finding him opportunities. Right. And this became a big problem in the third period as Bowman definitely was switching guys up. And as the game would go on, you know, he realized he needed to keep offense going primo. Keep in mind, Primo was an important player for the Detroit Red Wings. He would return for Game 3 and Game 4. He wasn't out for that long of the series. But in that se- in that season for the Red Wings, you know, the fairly young man had 42 points in 45 games. Uh, you know, he was fourth on the team in scoring behind Cicerelli, Fedorov, and Coffey, and just ahead of Shepard and Yeiserman. Like, this was a dude who was an important player and po- arguably a young player along with Fedorov and and uh, Lidstrom and Lapointe and McCarty, guys that you could feasibly build the future of the New York, um, the future of the Detroit Red Wings around. So, I mean, this was in a way you could have argued that this could have been his coming out party because you know, with him being you know being all six foot five and strong, with Dino Cicerelli being five foot ten and strong, you know, mucking it up around the net and causing all sorts of chaos and mayhem for the benefit of the Red Wings. You know, having one of the having him out is a big, big loss, Mm -hmm. especially in a tight, nasty game like this one, because this one did get nasty. Um, But uh, this seemingly innocuous hit that that did the damage here. It wasn't like a, you know, straight up. Oh, we got to stop the game and and bring him off the ice. Nope, it, it was just I got hit. I'm going off the ice. I'm out. Yeah, and he wasn't the only one that got roughed up that period for the Red Wings as Paul Coffey also took uh, a big, I guess it was an injury in the scuffle, but maybe he got hit by a puck. It was hard to tell. Yeah, yeah. here's what happened. So Tom Chorsky, who, you know, I guess could could argue was like a cult hero of the day, uh, he stole a puck and led a rare two-on-one for the Devils with Scott Niedermeyer. Chorsky decided, I'm going to shoot the puck as hard as I can. And it gets coffee in the leg, and coffee just goes down. The puck is still kind of loose, so Niedermeyer gets a second effort at it, and, and Vernon has to like scramble to keep the puck out, which was pretty impressive actually. But coffee looked down, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, if Primo and coffee are out, Detroit might as well call it a day because coffee was their top defenseman, he was their leading goal uh, point scorer of the season. And, you know, he's Paul Coffey. He's one of the greatest defensemen of all time. Like, you don't just replace Paul Coffey. Of course, they had Nicholas Lidstrom, who exactly did replace Paul Coffey, <laughs> but not in 1995, not at that moment. Um, so the Devils finished strong that period. And what was surprising to me was that the Devils still outshot the Red Wings 10 to 6. Based on what I was watching, I was kind of stunned that Detroit only got six on Brodeur. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, going into the third period, you're thinking, okay, no primo, maybe no coffee. What What's going to happen in a 1-1 game? Yeah, and the only uh, other things of note in that period was matching roughing minors for Cicerelli and Danico. Oh, yeah, yeah. After a play, uh, Dano, yeah, they, they just roughed housed, for lack of a better word. There was just some rough housing. Good, you know, oh, just a little bit of the good old tough stuff. You know, back in the day, you know, I'm a big fan of the tough stuff, Kanji. You know, uh, my Danico is terrible. I apologize to everybody. Uh, <laughs> but Dano probably would not be opposed to the rough stuff back then. It was weird to see him with hair, Dan. Yeah, it was it definitely was just weird. straight up weird. They, they did a profile picture of him in the third period 
um, on a graphic. And it was like, oh, my goodness, this guy had hair at one point. I could see where the hairline was was going away. But OK, Dan, Dano had flow back then. Yeah. <laughs> your, your mileage may vary if it was a good idea, but, you know, it was the 90s. It was hockey. Well, yeah, and he's doing it because uh, Cicerelli got pissed off at Lemieux at some point in front and went after a pit, and so yes. they matched up. And, God, it's oh, just, yeah. like, knowing what came after and knowing that the quote from Cicerelli was, I can't believe I shook that guy's hand, is just oh, yeah. such a nice, like, precursor into everything that would transpire between those two guys. Yeah, Lemieux, Lemieux basically started eating Cicerelli's lunch in the third period. And more importantly than that, Dan, Jacques Lemaire started eating Scott Bowman's lunch in the third period. Because once that third period started, Dan, I don't know if you noticed this, but the trap was on. Yes, and they really, you know, the trap served its purpose. This was a period that was quintessential 90s devils. This was a period that embodied everything they were trying to do in terms of frustrating these highly skilled, highly talented teams through the middle of the ice. This was something that you could see the motivation kind of drain from them as they went on, especially after um, Claude Lemieux put home a goal at 317 of the third period. This is... Oh, yeah, this is their only even strength goal of the game. And Lemieux had just come on in a change. And while the attention was drawn to one side of the net, he was wide open in the slot and hits the opposite side, the far side of the net as Vernon is coming across. Yeah, this was you could credit and you should credit uh, Tom Chorsky and John McClain for this one. So John uh, Chorsky wins a puck in the neutral zone. He plays it up into space for McLean, kind of not really a dump in per se. And just as a quick aside, both teams love their dump ins. Oh, my goodness. Dump ins all over the place. Carrying the puck in. What's that? We're dumping it in anyway. But Chorsky plays it in for McLean. McLean gets to the puck first, but Nicholas Lidstrom catches up to him. So McLean has to fight him off. And as in the process, and of course, Lidstrom is hooking him like crazy because it's the 1995 Stanley Cup Finals. Of course, you can get away with all that. So McLean's shot on net, he doesn't get a good good enough stick on it, and it bounces off Coffee's skate. And it just, it, who, by the way, is back on the ice. So, you know, he wasn't too hurt to play. But he unfortunately was in the wrong place at the wrong time because he blocked the shot. The puck kicked out into the slot area where, as you said, Lemieux, who is fresh off the bench, just torched his way to the side slot, hammered the puck like he never hammered a puck before and almost killed the damn thing, uh, slamming it into the net. It was like, oh, my goodness, it's 2-1 already. Like, you know, uh, the Devils are now winning. The crowd is completely stunned. And you're just wondering, oh, my goodness, the Devils got their trap going. They don't have Keith Primo, and they're up 2-1. Oh, no. The the crowd is as stunned at that point as the team was. They're just so frustrated seeing this develop. And you could see that manifest on one of the next plays as John McClain had an opportunity for a um, one-on-one with the goalie but got hauled down. And I thought maybe in some circumstances that could have been a penalty shot, but it was Doug Brown. It it wasn't end up calling, you know, it wasn't called called a penalty shot. It was just a penalty. But, yeah, I think it could have been. It just depends who you had, but I guess in the Stanley Cup final, it's never going to be a penalty shot. Um, no. But that being said, the Devils go back on the power play and unfortunately cannot make anything happen. You and then close. They, came, they came close, yes. <laughs> they came very close and they really you know, were pressing and trying to expand that lead because they knew that Detroit was too talented to 
contained for extended stretches of time. I mean, after the Devils' first goal, it only took Detroit around four minutes to tie things up. But this is the point where Detroit really, really started coming on, and there's a lot of credit to Marty Brodeur for holding strong and just really being in the right place at the right time every single time. Absolutely. And it's also a credit to the defenseman as well for, you know, as much as I can get on Drew Driver for another heinous turnover uh, later in the period. But Niedemeyer um, definitely showed his strength in this one. Stevens played a more active third period. Danico was um, surprisingly quicker than I thought. I guess, you know, that's a function of not being super old in 1995. Uh, but seriously, like the Devils did their best to try to clean things up and um, the forwards stuck to the game plan the the centers constantly dropped back to help out which also helped and as you said Bernard was in the right place at the right time for a lot of the or, or, or as i should say the few shots detroit would eventually get on net here yeah and, and um, niedermeyer was feeling so strong on his own that he engaged in a minute and a half wrestling match behind the net with paul coffee and in a oh, yeah. funny while thing the devils I, were attacking by the way exactly <laughs> like, so it became a four-on-four four for new jersey while paul coffee is the guy lagging back for the the red wings you know in, with new jersey in the offensive zone i should say but you know no niedermeyer no coffee i guess that kind of balances out but at that point <laughs> there's kind of a funny moment because niedermeyer just flipped his stick away from him as it dropped and i don't know if the broadcasters noticed that but you could definitely see it along the sideboards no but you know it was definitely a case of you know the rough housing was uh, also getting to be more of a sign of frustration than anything else and then a very important graphic came up at 1050 with 1053 left in the third period Mm -hmm. detroit was listed as averaging 36.3 shots per game in the regular season which is another indication of how dominant they were that season. Mm-hmm. And in that, at this time, with 10.53 left, Detroit had 16 shots on net. I could tell you, man, <laughs> that the Detroit Red Wings ended the game with 17 shots on net. Wow. So despite Detroit trying to push forward, they failed at getting a shot on target. And the one that obviously was brought on target, Berdor denied it. And it didn't come until literally the last minute of the game. <laughs> like, like New Jersey, say what you want about New Jersey here. You know, say what you want about the trap. But they were not sitting on this lead, per se. But they were playing a very patient game. And Davidson called this out perfectly in the first period. It didn't come to fruition until the third, where the Devils game plan is based really about patience. That they're going to play their system. They're going to set up 1-2-2. Two, two. They'll send a four-checker, influence you to go to one wing that you don't want to go into and force you to make a dump in or make a play that you don't want to make a play. Or if you somehow break through, there's already two guys back there to, d- to defend you. They're going to play this way, and they're going to continue to play this way all day long. And then when you start getting impatient and frustrated and you start turning the puck over, they're going to have guys in position to counterattack and counterattack hard. And while the Devils did not score in any of these counterattacks, they definitely must have given Scott Bowman an ulcer, you know, to see Tom Chorsky and John McClain rush forward, Scott Niedemeyer rush forward, mm-hmm. even Scott Stevens leading a two-on-one with Mike Peluso. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and Vernon, of course, was 20 feet out of his net when he stopped the shot. But, I mean... In the in the interim of these ten last ten minutes, you know Bowman is throwing Cicerelli out over and over again. He he threw he throws him out there with Fedorov, Kozlov, and and Coffee in an attempt to get offense going. Didn't happen. You kept seeing Yarzerman's line because Bowman needs offense. Didn't happen. You didn't see Chris Draper or McCarty or you know Bob Airy or Sean Burr all that often because 
bought, you know, Detroit needed offense and they, they needed to put out their best players, understandably so. But it's just m- mind boggling to me in retrospect to see New Jersey just handle their business so effectively and most importantly, Dan, calmly. There wasn't a lot of franticness. There wasn't a lot of, oh, my goodness, they got lucky here to you know escape or get a clearance here. They just took care of business, kept to their game plan, counterattacked when they could, and you know they tried to keep going. And Lemaire kept rolling his lines. You saw the crash line within two minutes of the game. Mm-hmm. I mean – you know, this the, the Devils were that confident in the way they were playing. They were that confident in how well Berdor was playing. And this is, I think, during this 10-minute stretch is where I think a lot of pundits and a lot of people who are, you know, the many haters and losers, of which there are many, were saying that, you know, the Devils had no chance, started realizing maybe the Devils do have a chance because this system is keeping and suffocating Detroit at bay. Yeah, and, you know, I think it might be as a consequence of when the goal was scored to give the Devils the lead, but just in comparing this to Game 7 of 2000, as much as we talked about Philly just kind of, you know, running out of gas in those last two and a half minutes, Detroit did not. Detroit came on strong, and while they may not have gotten many shots off, it's credit to the Devils' defensemen for getting in all the lanes and playing the positions correctly and preventing those dangerous passes, but Detroit still had a few opportunities that may not have reached the net or sailed wide that were much, much closer than Philly's. This this is something that oh, yeah. felt like, you know— they're so talented that they were going to get this opportunity anyway. And this wasn't, they're fizzling out to the end of the game. And like I said, it might be a result of when the actual goal was scored. Like, you know, it's deflating to give up a goal three minutes into the third, but it's way more deflating to give up a goal with three minutes left in the third. Oh, absolutely. And this is where going back to Primo's absence was a big loss because now all of a sudden the matchups did not favor Detroit so much. You didn't have that big right winger who was everywhere on the ice mm-hmm. he wasn't there you have to, you now have to play Cicerelli more well guess what Cicerelli playing at you know with a different line meant okay now did New Jersey could uh, consolidate their line so you saw a lot more of the whole of the crash line you saw a lot more of um, Bob Carpenter's line and they won those matchups they just won them mm-hmm. like they took and, and and you had a lot of great Efforts by Niedemeyer and especially Sean Chambers. I was really impressed by Sean Chambers in this game. Uh, he was excellent in his clearances. He was excellent with reading plays. He was very good at handling the when the game got uh, gritty and, and tough. He was handling his business well. One of the most impressive plays um, from his game came towards the end of the game where Vernon wanted to come off the ice, have Detroit have six skaters. He gets a huge clearance at 119. There, where the puck is sailed out of the zone, but it's not a, it's on an icing, so Vernon has to stay in the net, and he helps another clearance up, possibly happen a couple seconds later. So Vernon doesn't get off the ice until 50 seconds left, and I imagine in retrospect, you're a Detroit fan going, okay, we're down one goal to the New Jersey Devils, we have all of these top guys, and we can't get Mike Vernon off the ice. Yeah, they were uh, Help. having some issues there, and eventually they did get him off the ice, but any rush that they, they manifested did. after that. Um, you know, it wasn't that dangerous. It kind of squibbed out in the neutral zone, as was by design for this entire game. And the Devils hold on to take game one by a score of two to one. And that's the closest Detroit would get, really, at any point in the series, yep. as the other games ended with New Jersey winning by two goals every time, giving up two goals each time. By at least two goals every time, sorry. That's right. And right at the end of the game, of course, Claude Lemieux dumped 
uh, Kozlov, a big beef ensues, and then everybody just goes off. But um, that third period was basically that's where you know if you wanted to see the trap, the trap, the trap. Well, you got the trap, and New Jersey. Um, New Jersey trapped Detroit, and Detroit just couldn't get out of the trap. They were uh, hemmed in the trap. They were uh, hung back by the trap, and they ultimately lost to the trap uh, in this game and ultimately as the season went on. And while I was very impressed by Chambers, Scott Niedemeyer, Claude Lemieux's goal, uh, Brodeur, I was also impressed by Bobby Carpenter and Tommy Abilene. But in general, I don't think any devil had a bad game. Everybody worked their tails off to a degree. Even guys like Breland or Zelipukin, who didn't play that much, they did their jobs. Mike Peluso, you know, he didn't go out there and do anything stupid to Chris Draper or to another player because he was mad. He he played his role. You know, John John McClain and Stefan Richet didn't, you know, fit, figure that much in terms of offense. Neither did Neil Broughton, but they helped out a lot on defense. They helped the puck get going forward and they help make some shots happen, which is always a plus everybody served the role. And that sort of highlights what the 95 devils were all about. It was more, the logo on the front of your Jersey is more important than the name on the back. And to that extent, everybody has to contribute. It doesn't matter what role you're playing. You got to work. And if you can do that, you can take down a super talented team like the Detroit Red Wings in their building. Yeah, exactly. Everyone needs to buy in to overcome the, talent gap that was there and maybe it was perceived higher than it actually was knowing what we know in retrospect but for sure there was a significant amount more talent than yeah. th- the devils had and you know the only way they could overcome it is by playing their system to a t which is exactly what they did and so like i said they take game one as we know they end up taking the next three en route to their first stanley cup as a franchise we all rejoice there was a parade in the parking lot the devils aren't (laughs) moving anywhere it's all good vibes and so you know the the next the next game that we're covering i think we're going to go back to something a little more modern and i think it's going to be brodeur's record-breaking shutout that's right now before we head on to the wonderful land of 2009, I think that's when it was. Mm-hmm. But uh, in any case, yes, we're going to look at Brodeur's record-setting shutout, which was utterly fantastic. I mean, it's a shutout. Yeah. I mean, how can you not like uh, your goaltender was perfect, and it's Martin Brodeur, and you hate on that. But I do want to leave one final point about this particular game and why – that we watched this game and not just because it was available from the 95 series, but I wanted to highlight the fact that, you know, typically in hockey and just like a lot of things in sports, business, et cetera, is that when you see somebody succeeding in one particular way that you didn't think was a way to do things, all of a sudden you see a lot of copycats. You you see a lot of people trying to do the new thing. And the difference between a team just like following a fad of like, oh, we just got to get more speed or we got to get, get more European players or play more Canadian style or get bigger or get smaller. Like to this day, Dan, everybody, every team still plays some variation of the neutral zone trap in some way. A one, two, two. You can't just beat it by speed straight up uh, or pure talent. Like you need to have a system. And that was the big difference of why this has lasted for over 20 years uh, close to 25 years, I should say, as opposed to other fads where they just kind of go in and out of season in, in sport. And it's a big credit to Jacques Lemaire, Lou Lamorello, and of course the 94-95 Devils for demonstrating that um, 
if you do have that system and everybody does buy in and everybody understands a role and can perform in that role, then you become a very, very good team, no matter how many or how few Hall of Famers you have on your roster. Yeah, and, you know, that's important to note as well because that mentality translated over to assistant coach at the time, Larry Robinson, who was a sought-after commodity after that series, but eventually, as we know, came back to lead that 2000 team in kind of a shotgun manner at the very end of the season to the Stanley Cup championship as well. That's right. But now moving ahead to the game that we're going to watch, the 2009. So this one... This one is a bit interesting, Dan, because the game I found, I believe, is the Pittsburgh broadcast. Okay. Yeah, so, so it's the is, perspective so, from, what is it, December 21st, 2009. That's right. So you're going to get the perspective of a Pittsburgh Penguins team that was still in their halcyon days, you know, of fairly young Crosby, fairly young Malkin, you know, all the big names. You know, They had just won team. the Cup the previous summer. Oh, yeah, that whole they won the Stanley Cup recently. I guess that's a big deal, too. Yeah. Um, you know, but uh, Berdor was chasing history, and the Devils themselves back then were a very, very good team. Um, I'm not going to go into the reasons of why we don't remember that team so fondly, because that will make me angry and or sad, and mm-hmm. more like both. Yes. But <laughs> on this night, on December 21st, um, history was made, and it ga- virtually guaranteed that Berdor is among the greatest goaltenders of the history of the NHL. And yeah. So that that's game that's outside of the outside of the rink. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not not just any guy gets a statue. What, the winningest goaltender, and really, I think the shutout record, if anything, is more impressive because that means that you know, transcending the various eras of Devils hockey. I know the argument was often made that they were so good defensively that he didn't have to do much to get his shutouts. And you know, mm-hmm. this is 2009. This is not the 90s trap Devils. This is a very different team, and he still managed to rack up the records and that would be nowhere near his last one. No, not at all. And keep in mind the opponent again, this is the Pittsburgh Penguins. They didn't just win a Stanley cup. They scored a lot of goals and they Mm -hmm. terrified a lot of teams with their power plays and with their, um, their general attacking nature, obviously led by Crosby and Malkin who are still doing it to this very day for the Pittsburgh Penguins. So, you know, this is going to be a fun one. And, um, we shall see how the Pittsburgh people react to it. Yeah. I have a feeling it's not going to be nearly as enthusiastic as uh, I want to say Doc was still the play-by-play guy in 2009. Doc I don't and know Chico, maybe? It, for MSG. I, I don't know if Doc transitioned fully to NBCSN yet. Hmm. Uh, no, he was because that that happened last decade. So that happened in the 2010s. Hmm. So, so obviously when I watched it, and I'm sure when you watched it live – um, you know, we got to hear Doc and Chico go on and on. Oh, this is great. This is wonderful. I'm sure the Pittsburgh Broncos were like, yeah, congratulations on the shutout. <laughs> oh, the Penguins lost. Oh, especially <laughs> Chico, too. I mean, as as the goalie compatriot, he, he was loving it that day. And we'll see things from the other side as we try to bring you some more perspectives on Devil's history. So, you know, all that being said, we'll get to that episode. It's Martin Brodeur's if you're looking for it yourself. And, of course, I'll include the link to the video in Uh, my post as well when we put up the podcast but it's december 21st 2009 as brodeur records his 104th shutout passing terry sawchuck so uh, enjoy that game i hope you enjoyed game one of the 95 stanley cup final and we'll be looking forward to bringing you more games as this stoppage goes on and 
as they try to come up with a plan to get the NHL back. And of course, um, you know, our condolences go out to the Edmonton Oilers organization who lost uh, player Colby Cave to, um, you know, brain bleed. I don't know if it was caused by coronavirus or whatever it was, was, but, you know, it's it's obviously a tragic thing. The guy was 25 years old and you never want to hear or read about anything like that. So our thoughts are with them and everyone who played with Cave at some point in his career and really grew up with him too. That's just awful, awful news. And we're hoping that, um, you know, people have time and ability to heal. And so that brings us to the end of this episode of the garden state of hockey. Thanks again for joining us. And we'll be back here next time to bring you Brodeur's record setting performance. And as always, let's go devils.